Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Well, I warned you last week that our, our journey through the Sermon on the Mount is about to become pretty difficult. Uh, the Beatitudes were hard. They took a scalpel to our hearts in a way asking us to, to really dig down deep and, and evaluate the, the condition of our soul. Uh, but every good sermon comes with application. Every good sermon requires that we, we put those words to work. And the Sermon on the Mount is no different in Jesus' instructions. He, he gives us the, the characteristics of what a citizen of God's kingdom truly looks like. And with those expectations, there are behaviors, there are attitudes, there are actions that follow what a good citizen looks like. And we're comfortable with that language. We know what a good citizen of, of our country looks like. A good citizen is someone who follows the laws. A good citizen is someone who, who votes. A good citizen is, is someone who, who has a, a sense of patriotism towards their country. Not nationalism, but patriotism. Having a, having a sense of pride and, and value of the country in which we live. Uh, so, so we understand this idea of citizenship. However, uh, a citizen of the kingdom has some expectations, and this is what we are working through right now. When we look at Jesus' original sermon, it was, it was delivered to a, a group of people who, who looked very different from those of us who were here in the room, certainly looked different than the people who were at home watching this morning. Uh, it was very different in that day. The, 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 just the fact alone serves as, as a potent reminder of how much the world is transformed in these last two millennia since Jesus first sat down on that hill and preached this sermon. Yet in spite of the, the cultural, chronological differences that exist and that divide us and separate us from Jesus' original audience, I believe it's safe to say that the, the Sermon on the Mount is just as relevant for us today as it was for those who gathered when it was first preached. Now let me say, the verses we are about to consider are going to hit home. They're going to hit every single one of us, probably right between the eyes. You and I both know we live in a, not just an over-sexualized society, we live in a hyper-sexualized society. Uh, there's not a day that goes by in which we are not confronted with images of sensuality and sexuality designed to and intended to, to sell us products or to call our attention to patterns and, and, and behavior and entertainment. We understand that that happens daily. If you make it through today without some sort of image being shown to you, then you only did it because you didn't get on a digital device or you went off in the woods somewhere where you didn't have cell service and couldn't be reached with ads and things like that. For some of you, what we're about to talk about are going to hit home because you're part of a marriage that's been either injured by infidelity or maybe a marriage that has failed because of infidelity. Understand this, your pain and hurt do not go unnoticed. And if you're the victim of a spouse's hurt, then you probably could preach this sermon better than I can. But as I said last week, with these warnings in place, let's let the Word do its work. 
and radically transform our hearts. We need to acknowledge that we've got a problem. We live in a, a truly sick world. You may have heard last week that uh, there was a, a sting operation in the state of Georgia called Operation Not Forgotten. The U.S. Marshals, in conjunction with local and state authorities, were able to rescue 39 children in our state. 39 children in the state of Georgia. The director of the U.S. Marshals, Donald Washington, said that the FBI has reports of more than 421,000 missing children. And of those, around 90% are considered endangered runaways. One in six of those endangered runaways is likely to become the victim of sex trafficking, the U.S. Marshals say. According to Director Washington, roughly 300 300 young girls in the Atlanta area are lured into trafficking every single month. One of his most important messages was directed to victims of trafficking and said, we will never stop looking for you. We, we think that this is some problem that doesn't affect us, that this is some problem that, that happens only in cities like Las Vegas and foreign places, but it happens here each and every single day. And it's affecting our little boys, our little girls, because of this sick society that we call home. However, this isn't just a problem out in the world. This past week, we learned that the president of the largest evangelical university in the world had to step down after allegations of bizarre sexual behavior. You may have seen the photograph that circulated the internet uh, where he was, uh, had his picture taken with his arms around a young lady who both, they both had their midriff exposed in some sort of bizarre costume party and, he, and their pants unzipped. The president of Liberty University posted his, that picture to his own personal Instagram feed. The young lady was not his wife. Over the last few years, it's come to light that many of our own churches and institutions in the Southern Baptist Convention have been complicit in covering up sexual abuse allegations. High-profile leaders have fallen. Low-profile leaders have fallen. It's not just a leadership problem, however. It's reflected from the pulpit to the pews in churches all across this land. Churches large and small have become ground zero for this brutal attack against our witness. Church, if we have any intentions of reaching the nations for Christ, we would be wise to get our houses in order. We would be wise to start taking Jesus at his word. These are serious matters, and they deserve serious conversations. This morning, we continue on in our study through the Sermon on the Mount as we move to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. If you've got your place, I would invite you to stand as we read God's word from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Jesus says, You've heard it said that it was, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge that it presents us with. I thank you, God, that it cuts right to the heart and calls us to give an account for not just our actions, but our thoughts as well. We ask you to guide us as we consider your challenging words today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we, as we approach this subject, uh, it is certainly a challenging one, but there's a couple of things that we need to, to keep in mind as we, as we dig into these verses. The first thing that we need to remember is this, is that sexual relations between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage is nothing short of beautiful. That's, that's by God's good design. And in spite of the fact that that Jesus here is giving a stern warning about our thought life and our actions, we need to understand that God has given us a beautiful gift. Don't forget this one fact. The Song of Solomon is included in the Scriptures as the authoritative Word of God. There is a book in the Bible that is given to us to teach us about appropriate relationships in the context of marriage, and it is a, it is a, uh, it is a rated R book. Young Jewish children were not allowed to read this book until they were of age. Uh, read it with your spouse. It's, I promise you it is beneficial. Jesus here is not advocating some sort of prudish or puritanical or utilitarian view of sex and intimacy. That's not the point of Jesus here in the Beatitudes. Sadly, evangelicals have spent a lot of time teaching that sex is dirty. In premarital counseling, that's one of the topics that I have to talk through with couples is what is their view, what, is their, what, what are they bringing to a marriage when it comes to their understanding of sex and intimacy. I still love the old illustration of a fire. If you build a fire inside a fireplace, it is a beautiful, warm gift of God. Uh, who hasn't enjoyed having a fire started in a campfire or a fire in their fireplace on a cold winter night? However, when that fire is removed from the safety of its container, it becomes something that is destructive and damaging and deadly. The same is true for sexual relationships. Inside of the confines, the safety of marriage, it is a beautiful thing. It is a, inside the covenant of marriage, it is something to be celebrated. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 says that Christian married couples are not to withhold themselves from each other. Men, I know that a lot of you suddenly decided to start taking notes on this point. However, I'm going to need you to pay attention to the whole sermon. That in and of itself, the fact that God says Christian married couples are not to withhold themselves for one another is confirmation that God's design and God's intention for sex inside of marriage is for more than just procreation. But secondly, we need to remember this. In spite of the gendered language that Jesus uses here, 
I think we all understand that the intent here is, is not Jesus simply picking on men for their misgivings. Now, we understand that men are visual creatures. And so, men, you, you understand when Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. You, you understand what he's getting at there. We understand that, that, that as visual creatures, that the eye is a gateway to sins of the heart. We understand that. We might consider the, the stereotypical construction worker making catcalls towards the pretty lady walking down the street. There's a reason that the stereotype exists. There's truth behind those stereotypes. However, Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount are not simply limited to the Y chromosome. Yes, the X and Y chromosomes matter in spite of what the world wants to scream at you today. In a 2018 report released by the Family Research Council, it was revealed that this is not just a male problem. Listen to some of these statistics. More than half of women 25 and under seek out pornography, and one-third of it seek it out at least monthly. About one in five women use the Internet for sexual purposes habitually every single week. 25% of married women say that they watch pornography at least once a month. In a survey of more than 11,000 college-aged women revealed that more than half of them were exposed to sexually explicit material by the age of 14. According to one study, 15% of Christian women view pornography at least once a month, which is about one-half the national average. Somebody says, how do I know if I've got a porn problem? If you've got porn, you've got a problem. And it's true for men, and it's true for women. In recent years, the entertainment industry has specifically targeted women with major movie releases that glorify lust and fornication and infidelity. So let's not pretend here that Jesus is only talking to men. He's talking to both genders. When Jesus warned about anger and insults, he started with the sixth commandment. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But in his warnings about adultery, he begins with the seventh commandment. And our problem is the same problem as the Pharisees. If we take the seventh commandment at face value, we can walk around in our own self-righteousness and we can declare, well, I've never committed that sin. I've never murdered anybody, but have you had ill will and angry thoughts towards a brother and harbored for unforgiveness? I've never committed adultery, or have you? If you follow Jesus' definition, then the likelihood is none of us leave the room unscathed today. So our righteousness, as Jesus said, has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And as the law is concerned, it's concerned with external righteousness, but Jesus wants to get to the heart. And what we need to take away is this. Adultery doesn't begin with the physical act. It begins with the second look. What do you mean by the second look? Imagine, if you will, that you're sitting on the beach on a nice, warm, sunny day. And as you sit there, you, you find that someone attractive walks by you. 
Now, your definition of attractive may be different from my definition of attractive. We all may have different definitions, but imagine that you're sitting there and that person walks past. And since you're at the beach, that person is likely in some state of, of undress. But seeing that person isn't the problem. The problem is what happens next. What happens in the next moment after seeing that person? Because we all know the difference. We all know the difference between seeing someone and letting our eyes follow someone. When David went to his rooftop, King David went to his rooftop and to, to stroll around on that, on that night, and he looked over and he saw Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop. Well, sin did not happen when David glanced over and saw Bathsheba. If David had simply blushed and went back inside, well, the story would have ended very differently. But that's not what David did. David's pursuit of Bathsheba began, so it was more than just, oh my goodness, I've seen something, and, and let me retreat from this. Instead, David saw, pursued, went after, and, and that slide into sin turned not only into adultery, but eventually turned into murder. I appreciate how one author described this second look. He said this, deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame and the inflaming of the imagination by the indiscipline of the eyes. Deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame and the inflaming of the imagination by the indiscipline of the eyes. How many of us in our lives have fallen victim to the indiscipline of the eyes. Last week we talked about the inertia of sin. Well, inertia of sin applies to sins of the eyes as well. We talked about the progression of sin. A killer doesn't become a killer overnight. A killer becomes a killer once destructive thoughts take hold in his mind. When we consider Jesus' warning about adultery here, it doesn't happen overnight. It happens because sinful roots take hold in, in the mind because of lust. It doesn't happen because you saw someone who was attractive. You saw someone you believed to be uh, handsome or, 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 or pretty. It happens because those thoughts of lust take hold. Those thoughts begin in your eyes when they follow that person or because your internet search conjures up some delusion of what you think is worth pursuing or because you're part of a marriage where you find yourself unsatisfied and you selfishly disregard the feelings of your spouse the the casual pornography viewer starts spending money on his habits and then he finds himself in a strip club and and in his mind he's created this ridiculous world I'm not an adulterer. I've never done the act. It's, it's never gone further than, than the club. It's no, never gone further than the click. And Jesus looks at us, and he says it doesn't matter because adultery doesn't begin in the bedroom. It begins with the pixels on the screen. So the question that needs to be asked is this. How do we deal with this deadly sin that is affecting so many of our homes and so many of our churches and so many of our institutions? How do we deal with this deadly sin? 
Well, Jesus here recommends radical surgery to contend with our temptation. Now, let's not take Jesus literally here. There's no record that any of the disciples were, didn't have their eyeballs. Because undoubtedly, the disciples read this and thought the same thing we think this is, where's the line? And, and obviously, the disciples had their, their selves intact. It would have been hard to carry out the Great Commission with no hands, feet, or eyeballs. And so we have to recognize that Jesus here is, is using metaphor to communicate to us the significance of what he is teaching here. So if you're thinking about how you'd go about that process, you can breathe a sigh of relief. He's not being literal, but he is telling us what we have to do. In order to overcome this deadly temptation, in order to overcome this deadly sin, we have to behave as if we have taken Jesus literally. If our eyes are the source of our temptation, then we have to stop engaging them with images that invite our sin. If our hands and feet are the source of our misgivings, then we have to stop doing whatever it is that is causing us to fall. We have to stop. And again, I'm sure that there are secular psychologists that could come up with, with big, long treatment plans and reasons and, 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 and ways to overcome, but it simply comes down to the spiritual responsibility of old-fashioned repentance from our sin. We have to stop. If your eye causes you to sin, metaphorically pluck it out. Stop engaging that which causes you to fall. If your hands leading to your actions are causing you to sin, metaphorically remove them. Stop doing whatever it is that is causing you to sin. Or if your feet are taking you into a place where you are falling into sin, cut them off. Stop going to the places that are causing you to fall. I heard a story of a man who struggled with a, um, an addiction to this sort of behavior. And in his, when he pursued Christian counseling to overcome, the counselor worked with him on how to overcome this. And in order to stop going to the places that he was visiting, they came up with a new commute route for him so that he would not go past those places that were, causing, uh, that were attracting his attention. We have to stop doing whatever it is that is leading us to fall. Notice what Jesus says, though, here. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. He uses the word if. What's well, an interesting word. It's not a foregone conclusion. Because Jesus here understands that we're all wired differently. We all have different struggles, different things that, that cause us to fall. But if there is something that is causing you a, a struggle, there is a radical step of repentance that has to take place. And it's not just repentance in the sense of, Lord, I, I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry I did this again. But it is a turn from those behaviors that is causing you harm. For some of us, these things that are a terrible downfall to us. It could be that plucking out your eye means getting rid of some apps on your phone. It could mean finding someone to, to hold you accountable. Or it could even mean getting rid of the smartphone and getting something that's called a dumb phone. 
It could be that. I'm not suggesting that in this world of, of instant communication that people should go without a cell phone, but if your cell phone is causing you to stumble, then pluck out your eye. Get rid of it. Take it away so that all that's left is, is the phone that you can dial on and place a call. For some of us, plucking out our eye, it, it, might, mean, it might mean turning off the cable TV because that cable TV causes our downfall. It could be that turning off the Netflix is what needs to happen in our life because the Netflix is causing us issue. For some, it may not be your physical eye that is causing you to stumble, but maybe your, your mind's eye Maybe it's, it's not what you see, but it's what you imagine. And, and maybe it's the media that you are feeding your mind's eye. Maybe it's the steamy romance novels that you like to read that you'd be horrified if your child got a hold of. Again, feeding the mind's eye with lust. Plucking your eye out. That's where it starts. This morning I want to say a couple of things to some different people in the room. Not by name, don't worry. <laughs> Heart started pounding right there, right? Preacher, let's put the spotlight over here. No, I'm kidding. Um, first, a word to the married. A word to the married. I think sometimes we get into the rut of treating our marriages like they are businesses. What do I mean by that? Well, if you run a business, you know you have a job to do. What is your job? You produce widgets, whatever your widgets may be, and you wake up every morning to produce those widgets. You work hard to produce those widgets, and when you finish and clock out at the end of the day, you hope you've produced the widgets that your company needs to produce in order to make a profit. In, in marriage, we, we have a different kind of widget. Our, we, we let marriage become this factory where we produce children. And we spend our days investing into that product known as children. When the day is said and done, we, we tuck the kids in and we clock out. And we get ready to go to work the next day when those little widgets wake up and start the day over. If you are treating your marriage like a business, and if you are not investing in your marriage, if you are not investing in your spouse, listen to me and listen very carefully. You are creating an environment where these patterns and behaviors can sneak in and wreak havoc. No act of adultery is accidental. Every act of adultery begins in the brain long before it begins in the bed. And the best way to ward that off is to make sure you are investing in your marriage. Ask yourself the question, what am I doing to purposely show my spouse that I love him or that I love her? There's a verse in Song of Solomon, in chapter 2, verse 15, where there's a warning to the couple. It says, catch the foxes for us. 
the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in bloom. It's a beautiful passage talking about their, their romance, that it's, it's, it's in bloom. I mean, it's, it's at its peak. They're, they're madly in love with each other. They're spending time with one another. They're, 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 it's, a, it's a remarkable relationship, but there's a warning here to catch the foxes. This little poetic warning asking us to be mindful of the little things. The little things. What are the little things that are being done to damage the marriage relationship. Uh, we hear about the big fights over sex and money and kids and in-laws and all those different things. But so many times the issues that spark infidelity are, are not those big things. It's death by a thousand paper cuts. It's the little things. It's the things that all by themselves seem inconsequential when in fact they are piling, piling up and they are spoiling the vineyard. So if you're not investing in that relationship, you are preparing yourself for tragedy. To those who are not yet married, you need to make sure that you're not setting unrealistic expectations based on imaginary fantasies. If you're filling your mind with digital dreams from illicit websites, you're setting yourself up for failure. You need to kill the habit now before you ever bring it into a marriage. If you need help with this, there's all sorts of tools at your disposal. But the best tool is good old-fashioned light. Light sanitizes dirty things. Light sanitizes those things that are disgusting and devastating. So shine light on it. Find a friend who, who loves you and will hold you accountable. Uh, a larger church that I had a, a friend who served on their staff, they created a, um, an accountability group for their business travelers. It was, a, it was a great thing that they did. They had several men who traveled throughout the week, and when those men got checked into their hotels, they used technology that was at their disposal, and those men would open up a since a, a Google Hangout or a Zoom call. We're all used to that now in 2020. But those men in their hotel rooms would hold one another accountable so that instead of being in a hotel room by themselves at night on the company credit card with all sorts of things at their disposal on the television, they would go to their hotel room together with a Zoom call live or a Google Hangouts call live so that they were in the room, though digital, they were in the room together to help hold one another accountable. So there was the light of that computer screen shining on their behaviors. Hey, guess what? It worked. It worked. They didn't have to have conversations with those men about what they were doing on the hotel's pay-per-view. It worked. And then a word to all of us. Job 31.1 says this, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job is saying, I've, I've promised my eyes that, that I will not do this. How can I violate that promise? Job was a righteous man. He understood how damaging those lasting gazes could be. And so he made a promise, made a covenant, that he would not allow his gaze to wander. Church, listen. We are not the first generation to struggle with this. As a matter of fact, 
The church has struggled with this for a long time. But we are the first generation to literally have it at our fingertips. And we have created an environment where our children are being exposed to these things at younger and younger and younger and younger ages. Uh, I've had dear friends who have had their children exposed on a school bus to internet pornography at 10 years old. So we look at how broken it is for the adults who are in charge today. Let's consider how much damage we're doing to the generation that is to come. At what point does the church, instead of pretending this isn't a problem, own it, recognize how real it is, and take steps to not just guard our hearts, but to guard the hearts of the generation that is to come. We certainly struggle with it. How much more are our children and grandchildren going to struggle? So we'd better start giving it the seriousness that it deserves. Some of us listening at home or in, in the room today, perhaps you recognize that your struggle with this is greater than just a, a sinful urge or a lapse in judgment. You understand that there's something inside of you that not only pursues this, but almost has a calling that, that they're called to it. For those who struggle with that from beyond just the passing sin, but from a, a lifestyle of being drawn towards these behaviors, it, it may be that the thing you need most in this world right now is, is not to change behavior, but to change your heart. The Bible's very clear that when we're in Christ, we're given a new heart with new desires, with new urges. Instead of pursuing unrighteousness and sin, we want to pursue righteousness and faithfulness and holiness doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we get it right 100% of the time, but our urges are different. Our desire is different. If you're in the room today and you struggle with these behaviors, but you understand your struggle and you understand your longing and, and, and crying out for righteousness, it's not a matter of salvation. It's a matter of repentance. But for those who pursue this as its ultimate goal, who pursue lust and, 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 and these, these sexual behaviors, right now more than anything, you need a heart transformation. And that only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. He took your sin upon him that he might, you might be forgiven. He became sin for you that you might become the righteousness of God. And you simply today, by calling on the Lord Jesus Christ, putting your faith and trust in him for salvation, you can have your heart changed and be drawn towards the Lord Jesus Christ to live in his righteousness, the, right, the only righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. We know where adultery begins. It begins here and here. It begins here. What will we do today to make sure our hearts are guarded against those behaviors? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the scriptures, for the challenge that they present to us. We pray, God, that you will help us as a church to give these things the seriousness that they deserve, that we will not sweep them under rugs and hope they go away, but that, God, we will, uh, we will own our mistakes, 
that we will recognize the sin in our life and that we will seek to live in your righteousness day in and day out. Lord, if we struggle in these areas, God, would you give us the courage to find a friend, a loved one with whom we can be accountable? If we are coming out of a relationship that has been damaged by these things, God, I, I pray that you would help us to find forgiveness in our hearts, but Lord, that you would help us to, to learn from the experience and to help others avoid those mistakes. And, and God, help us as we seek to have healthy and whole marriages, Lord, that we would invest in our spouses that we would give them the time that they need and the attention that they, they deserve, God. Help us to show them that we love them and help to protect our homes from these, uh, these dangerous temptations and sins. And Lord, for those in the room, perhaps they've lived a longer life and, and they've raised children and grandchildren. God, I pray that their wisdom and the things that they have learned might be an investment for those of us who are still in the middle of it. Lord, help us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to overcome our failures and, Lord, to seek to walk in the righteousness of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.